All right, well, as we come to our study this morning, um, there are three points that I'm going to cover, and uh, that is sinners are saved by grace, sinners are changed by grace, and that grace leads us to praise God. And uh, to start off, I'm going to tell a story about a man named Louis Zamperini, who you may know from Laura Hillenbrand's biography, Unbroken, or the movie that they made about it. Uh, he was an American Olympian runner who, in 1936, was favored to be the first person to beat a four-minute mile record, which at that time was considered impossible. And at the age of 19, he finished eighth place in the Berlin Olympiad with one of the fastest finishing laps of that event in its history. And he set his sights on becoming a future gold medalist in the Olympics. But then World War II started before he could achieve that dream. And instead, he enlisted in the army. And to make a long story short, Zamperini was shot down, and he spent 47 days adrift in the Pacific Ocean. He was captured by the Japanese Navy nearly 2,000 miles from where he was shot down. And then because of his fame in America, his captors singled him out for torture and almost daily beatings. And over the next two years, he suffered disease, exposure, starvation, and humiliation. And he was eventually liberated, but his experiences continued to haunt him. He struggled with nightmares and flashbacks. Uh, his malnourishment left him unable to compete in running ever again. He would never meet that or hit that four-minute mile. And he turned to alcohol, alcoholism to escape the nightmares he had about strangling his captors because of the hate that had developed in his heart through that experience. But then an amazing thing happened in 1949. He heard the gospel at a Billy Graham crusade, and he received faith in Jesus. And because of the grace he received, he amazingly forgave his captors, and he even flew to Japan to visit the guards from his previous prisoner of war days and tell them that he forgave them, and to tell them about the forgiveness that he received through Jesus. Well, Lewis's story is a striking example of what happens when someone is changed by grace and how it should change us. And in our passage today, we're going to see a similar example of that in the life of the Apostle Paul as he uses himself as an example for how to see the gospel's work in someone's life. So our passage is 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. So let's read the full passage first. If you'll turn with me there, if you have your Bibles. Paul is writing to uh, Timothy, and uh, Timothy is a fellow ministry partner in uh, in the church that Paul is helping him with. And uh, so this is called an epistle, and uh, it's primarily to help Timothy. So here's what he says. I thank you, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, so um, I covered the background about how uh, this is to his younger ministry partner. And the general purpose of this passage is to combat a, uh, a group of cr- local Christians who are teaching a different doctrine. Earlier in the passage, he talks about them. And they're engaged in what he calls vain speculations about the law and genealogies who earlier, Paul says, desire to teach the law but lack understanding about what they say. And then Paul goes on to tell the story about his past life as a zealous oppressor of God's people, how God intervened in his life with grace, and how that grace dramatically changed him from a Jesus persecutor into a Jesus worshiper. And so our first point is that grace of the gospel saves us. So let's look again at verses 12 and 13. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. So notice that he begins by giving Jesus Christ thanks for the strength that God gave him. Now that's an easy little part to gloss over, but I think it's really important to the rest of the section here, because in contrast to his past as a proud rule keeper, Paul starts right off saying, first of all, let me tell you why any of this matters. Look what Jesus did to me. Paul wants to highlight that what he's about to say isn't really about him, There was no empowerment podcast or meditation class that kicked him into action. He was plucked out of his privileged position in Rome, given strength by God, and appointed for a job that would eventually end in his execution. Paul uses the strongest words to describe what he used to be. Persecutor, blasphemer, insolent opponent. And in other parts of the Bible, Paul elaborates on this. So in Galatians 1.13, just a little bit back this direction in your Bible, Galatians 1.13, he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And then in Acts 8 and 9, the disciple Luke writes something similar. He says, but Paul, he called him Saul because that was his former name, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And later, Luke also writes, he was breathing threats and murder. Now, if you were an early Christian trying to worship God, in the peace of your local church or home, Paul was a genuine terrorist to you. He got the endorsement of Rome. He didn't just disagree with you, but he wanted you dead. He wanted you in prison so he could stop you from talking about Jesus. And this is a key part of why Paul came uh, here to Timothy. This is a key part of his backstory. Um, If this was a movie script, this would be his origin story. What is it that made Paul who he is 
And why does he keep obsessing over this person, Jesus? But then Paul says something changed him. In verse 13, he says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. So what happened here with this grace overflowing? So first, he acted ignorantly, and that is not to say that his sin wasn't willful, but he didn't know Jesus. He was unaware of the Son of God and what Jesus did for him. And then grace, which is getting salvation that you don't deserve, that's grace, overflowed for him. And so you might think of a waterfall or a shower washing dirt off of you. Um, Paul may also have in mind here a swelling river that overflows its banks, like the Nile River uh, spreading fertilizer onto the Fertile Crescent in Egypt. Um, and uh, this reminded me of a story from when I was a kid. So we had a creek behind our house, and most of the year it was about knee-deep, and you could actually walk across it. And there was a woods on the other side. It was below a big ravine behind our house. And uh, something different would happen in the spring. The rains uh, in April and May would be so great that the river would swell. It would get deeper. It would overflow its banks completely on the other side as far as you could see through the forest. And once I got curious what that did to being able to cross it. So I actually tied a rope to a tree and tried to walk across. And eventually, after I got about a fourth of the way across, my legs were swept out from under me. And if I hadn't been holding the rope, I just would have been washed downstream or spat out on the bank a ways down the river. There was no way to cross without getting swallowed up by its abundance. And this reminds us of uh, Romans 5.20. Backwards a little bit in your Bible. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So in Paul's case, this abundance of grace overwhelmed him, and it gave him something he couldn't ignore, faith and love in Christ Jesus. That's the order that he talks about it. Grace came, and it produced faith and love in him. Those are the source, that was the source of faith and love. And that brings us to our second point, grace, the grace of the gospel changes us. Now at this point, Paul launches into the climax of his story here. In verse 15 and 16, if you'll look back with me, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. So there's several important things to note here. And first is that word trustworthy. He is highlighting this phrase is very important. Why is this trustworthy? Well, I take this to mean that it's a faithful or accurate description of God's message to humankind. And if you turn uh, one chapter over, in 1 Timothy 2.11, he says something similar. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. Paul repeats that again in Romans 6, that we have died with Christ, we'll also be raised with him. This is a really essential part of what Paul is trying to communicate. If there's anything else that Timothy is supposed to remember, it's this one thing. 
And Paul is partly arguing from his own experience as an enemy of God, formerly, and one who is now saved by Jesus. He has that experience on both sides. And he used this to fight for the opposite side before he used to be the worst sinner. And his life really answers and wins over any objection that Paul is just biased. In modern times, we might say that someone just grew up that way. That's what they were taught to believe. But he knows both sides equally well. Unlike the false teachers that Timothy is talking about in his church who lack understanding about what they say, Paul fully understands what it's like to oppose God and the gospel at every turn, all the while thinking that he is doing what's right. He was a lawkeeper. He was convinced. And Paul is saying, of all that I have to tell you, this is the most important. For any of you who struggle with confidence in your faith, take note of this man, Paul. He has an amazing story, especially for young men or women or teenagers or kids. While you're thinking about how to really own your own faith, and you're wondering whether these things that you've been taught are really true. Some of it you accepted because of the authorities in your life, but now you really want to own it for yourself. Look for someone like Paul, who knows what it's like to run from Jesus. These people are here in our church. Ask them about the experience they've had running from God and then finding him to be more worthwhile of their love and energy than those other things. The second thing to note here is that Paul's summary here of the gospel corrects false thinking and false teaching. So elsewhere in his letters, Paul highlights the importance of Jesus coming back from the dead. That's very important. But here, Paul uses his own life an example of why this is so important. He's essentially saying, Timothy, remember, Christ came, and then this happened to me. My life was completely turned around. I persecuted God and then got washed under this Niagara Falls of grace and mercy that I did not deserve. And by the way, you know those guys in your church that have that debate club about the law and genealogies? I tried that already. Paul's saying, I kept every part of the law. I could, and I still persecuted God's people. But then I received mercy. So he corrects the false thinking there. And then the third thing to notice in this passage, this passage is spoken to sinners, but is not about condemnation. Condemnation is involved in this message, but it's about something that Jesus did, which is that he came to save sinners. He came to save sinners, and that's the gospel news. Gospel means good news. This is the best news. And there's a very important shift that's happening in this part of the passage in Paul's letter. The shift is away from God's law, which condemns and shows us our guilt and our sin, which we do have. But the shift is then to a new focus on Jesus Christ, who saves lawbreakers. This passage does not dwell on how bad we are and our condemnation. It's a shift away from what we can do by our own strength and a shift to what Jesus does for us in his strength. So let's read that part again. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience. So Paul is excited about this because he used to spend his time living in what he called the law of sin and death. In Romans 8, what is that? If you try to earn God's favor by doing what the law says and trying on your own strength to keep God happy, the law gets to be your judge. You've chosen your standard. And some of us may have thought at times that we could make it or at least do more good than bad, but Scripture does not support that belief. It says you'll fail. So let's turn over to Romans 3.23. I do a lot of turning backwards in this passage. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he says examples of that elsewhere too. Basically, he means that without Jesus, we're all up the creek without a paddle. We're in trouble and we can't do anything about it. And so... In Romans 8, a little bit later, in that same book, Paul says, For God has done what the law could not do, weak as it was, the law was, through the flesh. So it's just a, another extrapolation of that verse. We are weak in our flesh. We cannot do what the law demands. We try, but uh, we fail. And I think it's important to pause for a minute and remind ourselves ourselves what sin really is. So what exactly is it about us that makes us fall short in Romans 3.23? Why is it everybody? Why, why are there not one or two or a handful or, you know, hundreds or thousands of people everywhere who are good enough? Well, according to Paul, being a sinner is a state of being and of thinking and desiring that is not just wrong things we do, but part of our nature. So in Romans 1, 22 through 23, he says of sinners who do not know God, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So sin here isn't just about breaking God's commands, but about our innate tendency to exchange one thing from another, to exchange uh, God's glory for images. And as John Piper, he puts it like this, we embrace alternative lovers because we, more than any culture in the world, live in an age of images. There, there's all kinds of symbols about things that define our lives. There's entertainment and fashion and sports and uh, any, any manner of things that we see on the screens, things we desire to buy and to have and fill our lives with. But sin here is about abandoning the most valuable thing in the universe for things that are infinitely less valuable. Some of them are good things, but we've divorced them from their source. So C.S. Lewis has a good way of putting this in perspective. He said in his book, The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant 
by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased, he says. So I think of this a little bit like if you had the chance to have dinner at your favorite sports hero's home. Personal invitation. But then you said, no thanks, I'll pass. I was really looking forward to McDonald's tonight. It's a cosmic injustice against God's goodness. That's the, the root of sin. And as Paul says in Romans 7, sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment to produce sin of every kind. So that's why simply trying to be a better person doesn't attack the root of sin. Again, John Piper says, when it comes to the source of salvation, Paul is not a, a mixer of works and faith. There's a lot of things in the Bible about how to live, but the source of salvation doesn't start there. So that's why Paul, despite being such a good law keeper earlier in his life, he still needed that flooding river of God's grace in order to be saved. And I think the reason it's important to think about sin is firstly because Paul does mention it here, so we need to address it, but also because if we fail to see what sin is, we will also feel to fail to see who Jesus is and why he came, why it's so important. Paul found his identity in the law before grace broke into his life, but many of us are rebels, not rule keepers. So another side of the same coin. We're tempted to find our identity in other things like entertainment, a big house or bank account, being liked by others, sexual or relational fulfillment, a successful career. And I think that if anyone has a pulse, you can check yourself, and, and probably something that you love is in one of those categories or one of these resonates with you. We all struggle with that. We all have those things. Whatever it is for you, a rule keeper like Paul or a rebel and a pleasure, pleasure seeker like many of the other people that Paul talks about in other places in his letters, both fall short of giving God the glory that he deserves. And that makes both kinds sinners. So Paul is an example of one extreme, but it includes anyone in need of grace, which is all of us. And because of that, we all need grace in the exact same way that Paul did in his life. And I think that's why an angel appeared to the shepherds in Luke 2 and said, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Peace here looks forward to Jesus' death and resurrection, where he took the punishment for our sin and then rose again to prove that he had the power to bring eternal life. So sin puts us in conflict with God, and then Jesus takes that sin on himself for us so that we can have peace with God again. So he attacks the source of our sin. And in all these things, Paul was changed by grace and lived a new life defined by God's love. Things happen to him. And at that, that same grace is available for us if we believe what, in what Jesus did, coming to save sinners by living a perfect life, dying in our place to take our punishment from sin, and raising from the dead to show that he had the power to give eternal life. And that brings us to our third point. The grace of the gospel leads us to praise God just like Paul did here. So getting back to Paul's argument, let's read verse 16. 
But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So up until this verse, Paul makes a pretty good point about himself being really bad, how, before, how bad he was before he found Jesus, and how big of an example he is for us now. So he terrorized the church, persecuted Christ, until God intervened to show him mercy. So one application here is that anyone can come to Jesus and be saved. No matter how bad we think we've blown it, or the mistakes we've made, no matter how scandalous our past is, it's never too late for us. This is really important for those of us to remember who may feel shame about our pasts or who don't feel lovable or loved by other people. Or for those of us who are just plain scared or embarrassed about the thought of anyone finding out who we really are deep down. That's a scary thing for anybody. So the message here is even if even Paul can get God's mercy, so can we, so can you, so can I. But that's not all. That verse 16 is about if Paul was really just saying there's hope for you to get a personal makeover or have some kind of spectacular turnaround story to tell, he would have left verse 16 out of the Bible. It wouldn't be here because it's not just about having a turnaround story or finding a way to cope with life, even though those things might be part of what goes on in your life when you experience the gospel. It might include those things, but he gives a reason here, and this is the reason that we should, we should think about. He says, That in me Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So to use the word appointed from verse 12, Paul is not appointed to be an example of himself only. That's, that's one thing that is going on here. But this isn't just a before and after photo. I think if we left it there, we would miss something important about this passage. There's a third element in the story, and that is Jesus Christ's patience, his amazing patience. And Paul is used by God as an example of Christ's patience to those who were to believe in him. So do you notice the difference? It's, it's not just that even someone like Paul can be saved, but it's that Jesus saves even people like Paul. Jesus is the subject here. In other words, Christ wanted to put his mercy and patience on display for other people to see so that they could become receivers of God's mercy and patience too, just like Paul, so that we could be receivers. And in Paul, so in Paul... In Paul's life story, he is chiefly an example of Jesus Christ's ability to save sinners. The ability, of that's the topic of our sermon. He came to save sinners. Similarly, in Paul's text to Timothy in, uh, the second, in 2 Timothy, another letter, he says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be f fully proclaimed. And all the Gentiles might hear it. So Paul is saying here, look with amazement at what Jesus did in my life. Be amazed by that. And then believe in Jesus because of what we learn about him by studying this example. 
Paul's hoping that because of God's work in his life, people everywhere will hear the message and believe in Jesus for eternal life. And this gives us a clue to what Paul might mean when he says twice in this section that he is the foremost or worst sinner. So it's obvious that he was definitely one bad dude already from everything he said about himself persecuting the church. But is he really the worst of all the people in the world that you can think of? I don't think he's really saying here that he's scientifically the worst sinner of all sinners past, present, and future. There's no way he could know that, so he wouldn't have said it. Just read any history book or glance at your social media, and it's obvious the enormous amount of evil that has been committed in this world continues to be committed. It could be hyperbole that he's using just to make the point that he's really bad and make a contrast, and I do think that's a big part of it, but because of his past life, his conversion is surprising and stunning. But more than that, what Paul seems to be concerned about here is magnifying Jesus. He's using his life as a springboard to talk about what Jesus does, not about standing out among other people. So it seems like a better understanding of the word worst here is this. Compared to the saving power of God's grace, our own sin will naturally feel like the worst because the contrast between God's glory and holiness and where we're at is so big. In that sense, we are all the worst sinner. It's a normal and appropriate reaction to be amazed about Jesus Christ. When we see God's glory, we can't help but be humbled in response. So we're no longer comparing ourselves to other people. We're primarily concerned about this relationship that we have with God and what that means. So it doesn't really matter how bad someone is compared to Paul. I don't think that we have to do that. Most of us probably aren't that bad or we wouldn't be here. (laughs) But what matters is the patience and mercy we can receive by believing in Jesus despite however much sin and shame is tallied up on our spiritual scoreboards. And if you go back to the root of sin, exchanging God's glory for things, we are as bad as Paul even though we didn't do those things. We've exchanged God's glory. But because of his patience and mercy, we can be saved. One more thing to notice about verse 16. Look with me there again. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So that's not about Timothy anymore. He's saying that it's an example for those who would believe. That's us. Paul wants the gospel to spread, so he wrote this passage for Jason Heckey, so that Jason Heckey would believe, and Ed, and Jeremy, and Kevin, and Hannah. This part reminds me a little of a film technique called Breaking the Fourth Wall, which you guys probably have heard of, and it's when the story acknowledges the audience and um, the actors engage the watchers, which doesn't normally happen. 
And movies like Fight Club are famous for doing this. The actors look directly in the camera. They have an internal dialogue or a side dialogue just with who's watching. And that's similar to, I think, what's happening here. Paul is inviting us to be encouraged and changed by God's grace. He is definitely saying that he is an example for those who would believe, probably for all time, not just the people in Timothy's church, not just to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to everyone else. And lastly, in verse 17, Paul shows us what the effect of the gospel should be in our lives, with, which is praise and worship of God. So read verse 17 with me. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So earlier we read how Paul's wrong relationship to God through the law led him to oppose God in sin. But here we see that a right relationship to Jesus, who is the Savior of sinners, leads to a new changed life and veneration and worship of God. So again, this is not just about getting our act together and doing better things. This is about worshiping the God of the universe. First, we receive overflowing grace from God, and then we give overflowing praise back to him. So as we wrap up this Christmas season, think back to what grace did for someone like Louis Samperini. After his captivity, captivity, he had a huge personal roadblock to becoming a Christian. He felt justified in himself for the wrongs that he had endured for over two years, and he was consumed with pain and hatred over it. And that is until he saw God's grace. And then he became convicted of his own sin. Imagine what that must have been like to to stop condemning these people who were so obviously evil and start thinking about himself. And he became convicted of his own sin, and God's grace saved him and changed him and then led him to praise God so much that he forgave his captors. He flew to meet them and tell them that he had been forgiven. And he spent the rest of his life sharing his faith with other people. In essence, he became a little Paul, and he was used by God as an example of praising Jesus. So in closing, we can apply these verses to our lives in four different ways. The first, be an example to others of God's kindness. So Christian listening here today, you are an example of those around you, not only about your relationship to God that others can observe, but also as an example of God's kindness to you for saving you in the first place. So just as Paul puts himself out there as an example of Christ's ability to save sinners, your life shows the folks in your life that God saved even you. And that puts God's kindness on display, just like it did in Paul's life. So consider how this humbles us when we feel proud in our so-called holiness. One way to do this is not to hide your origin story, like Paul. Let people see your weaknesses as well as your thankfulness to God. As Tim Keller puts it this way, which is very striking, the gospel is this, he says, we are more flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and, and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You really have just a couple of choices. You can either deny your sin, 
or you can acknowledge it and be despairing. And I think sometimes people who initially acknowledge who they are can fall into that trap. But the third option is to acknowledge our sin in relation to God and be freed from it. This is why we say the gospel is our hope, because in Jesus Christ, we can acknowledge who we are deep down, including all the bad stuff, all of the regret and shame, and still be free from it to be fully loved and accepted by God. Now, if any of you have ever been lucky enough to have someone in your life who really got you, who really understood who you were deep down and still made you feel safe and loved despite yourself, then you have a little glimmer of what it's like to be loved by Jesus. You have tasted just a tiny bit of the kind of love that is full in God, but only partial in this world. Or if it's the opposite for you, you've longed for that kind of relationship, for loving friendship or intimacy, but you haven't found that. Those longings can serve as a powerful reminder of just how much this world's world falls short, how dangerous it is to put our hope in those temporary things instead of in Jesus. So this is what Zamperini tried to do to his former captors as an example of God's love and kindness in a world that can't even come close to promising that, though it tries sometimes. So our goal should never be to put our best foot forward to impress others, but to be a humble example of Jesus' patience to save even Jason Heckey, even insert your name. Second application, let grace change you. A good way to do this is to ask yourself what is important in my life and see how that measures up to the gospel's priority in your life. What things would devastate you or have already devastated you if they were taken away? What possession or hobby or physical or intellectual ability do you have that defines you more than you've let Jesus define you? How would your neighbors or friends or coworkers define you? Would your love for Jesus be in the top five things they notice or hear about you? And if you're listening, but not a Christian, use this as an opportunity to ask yourself, what's holding me back? Is it fear or shame or love of something that you'd have to give up? Or is it the, the idea that you're just fine and you don't need anything? I'd encourage you to look for people like Paul and Zamperini and ask them about their faith and their former life and find out why they think following Jesus is so worthwhile when there's so many other things they could have instead. And then the third application, marvel and be amazed at Christ's salvation. I think Paul does that really well here. He, he's just building up into this burst of praise. We saw how God's grace changed Paul into becoming a Jesus praiser. So, how do you live in a more godly way? Paul's definitely not saying get, get more rules to obey. It's, by keep, it's not by keeping more rules or being a better person. Maybe we think sometimes avoiding the scandalous sins like murder or cheating on your spouse is the way to go. And um, discipline, personal discipline, that's never bad to have personal discipline. I'm one of the first people to recognize the value of 
personal development, self-discipline, personal improvement. But taking Paul as an example, you can be more godly simply by marveling at both your sin and Christ's amazing salvation. It's as simple as that. So when you're tempted to sin or discouraged about losing a loved one or struggling not to get sucked in by the, the money and power-hungry materialism of this Loudoun County, Virginia world that we live in, just think about how infinitely better of a treasure Jesus Christ is for your soul and your eternal destiny than all of that. It's, it's hard to sin and harder for sin to entice you when you're staring at God's glory. So simply marvel at the amazingness of Jesus for saving you. That's the foundation of godliness and the changed life that we see in Paul. And then the last application, praise Jesus privately and publicly. We also, we already saw how Paul's description of the gospel led him into that burst of praise in verse 17. So think to yourself, if you're a Christian, how do I praise God in my life? We can all ask ourselves, does reading the Bible draw us into praising God? When is the last time that the gospel made us praise him? Or if it doesn't, why not? Christ wants to save sinners. So what hindrances are there in your life that are keeping you from experiencing this good news to the point where you could cry or shout for joy? So three practical things you could do to praise God. God more privately and publicly. Read and meditate on the words of the Bible. Praise God through the Psalms. Many of them are praises, so make them your prayer. And then third, tell others about what you know about the gospel. This is a great way to remind yourself when you actually have to explain it. It reminds you of all the reasons that you have for the hope that's in you. Just as uh, the Apostle Peter said in, in Peter, 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. If this hope defines your life, why not? So if we're practiced in these things, we'll give ourselves every chance there is to be drawn into praising God. So as we close, let's, uh, let's think on these words, a praise from a, a song called O Great God. It goes like this. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joy. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Amen.